holy cow, that baby is cute. Am I right or am I right? I mean, sometimes you see shirts like that and you're like, uh, I'm not so sure, you know, it's a bold statement. That's a true statement. So it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Doug, one of the pastors here at, the Park, at Parkview, and it's a joy to be able to preach God's word with you. And we are studying as a church right now, going through the book of Acts. And so I'd encourage you, if you have a copy of God's word, and I sure hope that you do with you this morning, I invite you to take it out and open it up to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be reading specifically in verses 4 to 25. So 8, chapter 8, verse 4 to 25. <clears throat> One of humanity's greatest virtues is its ability to overcome adversity. One of humanity's greatest virtues is its ability to overcome adversity. I was reminded of this fact recently. My wife and I decided we wanted to sort of just take the family somewhere far away from Iowa City. Well, not far away, but as far as we can get in about a day and enjoy ourselves, okay? So one of the places that we've always wanted to go was the Art Institute of Chicago, and we decided that as a family, this one's going to be done on our terms. We, we get to call the shots. Your kids, you're just going to come along with us, and you're just going to enjoy it or act like you do, all right? This, is for mom and, this one's for mom and dad. Every now and then, it's okay to do that. I think parents, give yourself the freedom to do that. It's okay. We've had enough water slides and happy meals in our life that, you know, I think we've earned it at this point. So, so while we're walking through the Art Institute, I was reminded of this fact, looking at the work of some of the artists throughout. I mean, it's just a, a couldn't even, I mean, we were there for a day. We, we, we uh, really should have spent like a whole weekend there, quite honestly. Um, but the, the artists such as Picasso and Van Gogh, they remind us as we look at the artwork that's hanging on the walls, there, there's a deep connection between art and adversity. We've, we see this throughout culture, throughout the world. If you pay attention to art, you'll quickly notice that there's a link between creative genius and personal adversity. See this from John Milton's Paradise Lost to Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. There's whole artistic movements that are born out of adversity. I think specifically of jazz and blues. And even when we zero in on Christian art, um, we see this, we see examples throughout history of Christian artists who, who pr uh, provide us with excellent art because of the adversity that they went through. We think of the classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul by Horatio Spafford, or the great African-American spirituals that came out of tremendous, tremendous suffering. But this reality is not just evident in our art. This reality is evident in our roots. In fact, it's a key aspect of what it means for us to be Christians. It's a key part of our identity. We saw this truth driven home last week as we considered a text, uh, the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen, and uh, a phenomenal message preached by Pastor Wade that, that helped us remember that God uses pain he uses the pain in people's lives, in your life and in my life, to advance his purposes. Now, what would have seemed like maybe just a complete tragedy with the death of Stephen could have easily been interpreted as total defeat. 
This was a season when God was working in remarkable ways through signs and wonders. Numbers were being added to the movement daily by thousands. There, there was a beloved and beautiful community that was being formed. This was a movement that had momentum. It could have been interpreted, it could have been seen as though Stephen's death was an indication that the opposition had finally become too much. The people, we learn in verses 1 through 3, would scatter as a result, except for the apostles. They would leave Jerusalem. They would be forced out of this beloved community. It could, you could think that what's happening is just a tremendous tragedy. But actually, we know, as the story continues, that there's actually a triumph here in the midst of great tragedy. What was actually happening was that God was answering their prayers in the most surprising way. If you remember back in chapter 4, the, 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 the believers had asked for boldness, that they would be given boldness to proclaim God's word. Last week, when we looked at the life and ministry of Stephen, we learned that, that God was not only answering their prayers, giving them boldness, he was also accomplishing his purposes through them. And this morning, as we continue this story, we will learn that these, he was accomplishing these purposes in, quite honestly, the most surprising way. The most surprising way. We'll learn as we look at our chapter this morning, the, the story that is before us, that Yes, God uses people's pain to advance his purposes. And while that is great news, and for so, some of us who are experiencing currently significant pain or tragedy or loss, it should be an encouragement to us. But the good news of the passage this morning is that his purposes are perhaps in you even greater than you have imagined. What we'll see this morning as we look at this story in chapter 8 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. And his purposes, God's purposes for these people will not fail. This morning we'll see that all different kinds of people God is bringing into his family. So, direct your attention to the text. I'm going to read it for us in its entirety, and then I will pray for us and we'll dive in. Start in verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. When Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God 
and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I, on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, for nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come before you as your people who are in need this morning of uh, your spirit to be at work in our lives. And so we, we ask that your spirit would lead us in your truth as your word is proclaimed, that we would discover for ourselves not just what you would have for us, but, um, Lord, what you require from us as well. Lord, we pray that this idea of, of your purposes being fulfilled through your people, even in the, in the midst of great loss and tragedy, Father, I pray that it would serve for us as a reminder that you are a God who, when you set your mind to something, it will be accomplished. Lord, and we are thankful that you have chosen to work through broken, needy, exhausted people like us. Lord, I pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, that you would take this truth, which is eternal, Lord, and we ask simply that you would write it on our hearts and you would form us in the people that you have designed us to be. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to help us see this morning that this good news of Jesus is a, is a message that is intended for all kinds of people, we're going to follow the stories through sort of three different movements. And the first movement is we're going to consider the pattern of revival, the pattern of Revival. You see this, the story really, it starts off in verses 4 to 8, is none other than a full-fledged revival. This is, this is exactly what we as the people of God should long to see happen in our midst, in our community. This is a revival. And as we read the story, we see a pattern that is apparent. The first key aspect of this pattern is that the word of God is proclaimed. 
the proclamation of God's word. You see it right there if you look down at verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In verse 5, we learn that Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, and when he goes there, what is the task that he takes up? Philip proclaims the Christ. He's faithful to speaking God's word, and it is vital if you want to see revival. This is required, the proclamation of God's word. Now, it's important to remember that, that where he's going is he's going into Samaria. And these were a people that were despised, would have been despised by the Christian Jews of the day. They were not Jews themselves. They followed the first five books of the Old Testament. They would have been, because of that, familiar with the promises that God would send a prophet like Moses to deliver his people. And, and the Samaritans would have held on to that messianic promise. So when Philip comes to them with the good news that what their, their season of waiting is over, his essential declaration, his proclamation to them is that the Messiah whom you have been waiting for, he has come and his name is Jesus. This, as I said before, was an answer to what they had been praying for, that God would give them boldness specifically to proclaim the word of God. As you could imagine, if we, you and I were in this situation where we faced tremendous opposition, the temptation would be easily for us to close our mouths. If opening them meant persecution, if speaking about Jesus would mean that we would suffer for Jesus, our temptation would be to say nothing. But the Spirit grants them their request. And Philip is filled with boldness as he steps into Samaria. And what does he do? He proclaims the word. Necessary for revival. Proclamation of the word of God. Secondly, we see that another part of this pattern is that he is empowered by the Spirit of God. He's proclaiming the word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. You see it in verses 7 and eight, we see that the word that Philip was proclaiming was not just an ordinary word. It's not just his word. It's not that people are drawn to him because of his creative ability or his oratory skills. Rather, it's that he is, his preaching is empowered by the very Spirit of God. Just like we saw with Peter and John in Acts 4, we saw with Stephen when he stood before the council and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, so too here, Philip's preaching is accompanied with signs and wonders. As we read the story, we see that unclean spirits are driven out of people. We see that paralyzed and lame are healed. It's evident that Philip has an extraordinary spirit of power. And these signs, this power that accompanied his message, they were demonstrations, they were signs that ultimately would authenticate or validate the, the word that he was proclaiming. They were given to him as sort of living illustrations. The person who, who was lame, who's now walking around, was a signpost ultimately pointing the fact that the message that Philip was proclaiming was a message from God. It wasn't a message from man. And if you wanted proof, look around. Lives are being transformed. The sick are being healed. The, the lame can walk. All of these signs and wonders were indicators that this 
message is not from man, but it is from God. It's the real deal. Summary of what would happen in verse 14, we see that Samaria would receive. They would see the signs, the wonders. The Spirit would go out in power. The Word would be proclaimed. And the result would be that Samaria, verse 14, received the Word of God. Not just that they saw signs, but that the signs were given that they might accept the Word of God. It's emphasized by the words in verse 6 that the people paid attention to what was being said. It's a verse, uh, that's a phrase that's repeated three times in this section. Previously, what did they pay attention to? Simon, the magician. But now, their attention was captivated by a new message. The message of Jesus Christ. It's amazing when you think about revival, how critical it is that people pay attention. And how quite honestly surprised I am when it actually happens. You know, I think of Faith Academy, and this, just this past week I learned of a, a, a young boy who had spent kindergarten through sixth grade. I just heard this wonderful story about how he was in the back of his classroom. We had a substitute that was in the room, a long-term substitute. We've got a few teachers having babies, okay? One of them was just up here. And, uh, and as a result, we got some subs down there. And one of the subs came to me and said, you know, this amazing experience happened with this young man. I, I saw him thinking in the back of his class. Back in the classroom, I, I saw him wondering and thinking. I asked him, what's going on? What's on your mind? And he began to talk about how he was thinking about what it would mean to be a Christian and what, it would, what, what Jesus had accomplished for him and what it means for him to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And she began to encourage him, do you want to follow Jesus? And he said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. You want to get baptized? Yes, I want to get baptized. You think you will follow Jesus in junior high? Yes, yes, yes. And what was amazing to me is when he told the reasons, like his understanding of the gospel was because he simply paid attention. And what was crazy about that story is how shocking it was to me. I mean, the kid comes to chapel every single day, and here's the gospel proclaimed. In revival, this is what happens. People pay attention. They wake up to the word that is being proclaimed. And what is produced in the city as a result? As the message goes forth, empowered by the Spirit of God, people are paying attention to what's being said. The result is... We see it right there in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. This is the result. Joy in the city. The gospel is proclaimed by the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and joy is unleashed. It fills the city. This is what revival looks like. God gives an unusual power to the proclamation of his word. Lives that are broken and needy are transformed. And the city is filled with the joy of Jesus. Parkview Church, let me remind you, this is what we long for. This is what we long for as we proclaim the word of Christ. This is what we long to see happen in our city, in our communities. That the joy that we have in Jesus becomes contagious and it, like a wildfire, catches and spreads and fills the city. I think one of the big problems that we face as a church, especially in today's sort of culture wars, is that we often are, are tempted to see those who don't follow Jesus as enemies 
that ought to be defeated and destroyed. And whatever we can say or do to prove that we are right, well, let's say or do that. But the picture we have here of Philip, the evangelist, as he walks into Samaria, a people who couldn't be more different from him, he proclaims Christ for their joy. And that's what we long for in our community. The neighbor who lives next to you, the colleague who works close to you, the student who has class with you, does your heart break for them so that they can know the joy of Jesus that you have? It should. It should. We want their joy. It's part of the reason why in our mission statement we are a whole church who forms disciples, whole disciples for the good of all people. And all of this is for the glory of God. Now notice just quickly two things in this pattern. First, there's nothing spectacular to this outside of the fact that the Holy Spirit is empowering it. This is what we've been talking about all year long. How do you make disciples? This is the pattern. You proclaim the word of God empowered by the Spirit of God to the people of God patiently over time. This are just, these are just the ordinary means of making disciples. Point number one. Point number two this is just an ordinary dude. In fact, so far, the first couple of stories that we've re read uh, uh, since the commissioning of deacons, look at how amazing this work is. And these are just deacons. Deacon Stephen. Deacon Philip. Stephen laying down his life. Their, their understanding of God's word. These are just ordinary men. The Spirit is working powerfully through. It's the pattern of revival. Secondly, I want you to notice in this passage the preservation of unity. The preservation of unity. The, look at the, the, the visit that we learn about in verse 14 by the apostles Peter and John. Following the breakout of revival, after hearing news about what is going on, remember, we learn in verses 1 to 3 that the apostles remain in Jerusalem. The rest of the church scatters throughout the area. So upon hearing the news that the gospel has gone into Samaria, the apostles send Peter and John to go down. Verse 15 says they came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Upon arriving in Samaria, Peter and John discover something unusual. There's something unusual we learn that, that while they have heard, the people have heard the word proclaimed by Philip, they had believed in that word. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. However, what's unusual is that we're told that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. Now, it's important to remember as we read through the, backs, the book of Acts, this is an unusual sort of sequence of events. It's one of the things that stands out about this passage. It's unusual. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, we learn how sort of the usual pattern looks. Remember that sermon where he was, the, the listeners were cut to the heart by his message, and Peter, they say, what, what should we do based on what you're saying? And Peter's response is this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the normal pattern that we discover as we read through the book of Acts that they believe, they confess their sins, they repent, and they are given the Holy Spirit. 
This is the promise of God, and it's the pattern of God that we read throughout Scripture. When you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're given the Spirit of God to indwell you. We also know that from the Bible, from the Bible and other sections that clearly the Spirit is at work in Philip's preaching. He's present there in Samaria. So the question is, as we read this, why? That should be the first question that we ask. This is an unusual part of the text. When, when I read it the first time, that was the first question I thought, I better figure out why that's there. Well, the first reason it's there is because it actually happened, okay? But the second reason why it's here, the second reason why this happens, the, the main reason, really, the quest, answer to that question is really a matter of geography. It, it's related to the fact, the answer to that question, why this sequence, why this unusual sequence, why do they not have the Holy Spirit immediately? It's really a matter of geography. It, it's related to the fact that they are located physically in Samaria. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells the, the, the disciples that you will receive power from the Holy Spirit who's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And this verse, Acts 1.8, sort of serves as like the contents page of the book of Acts and describes the different phases of gospel growth and, and expansion of the church, that it would start in Jerusalem and, and then the, the Jewish people would expand to the Jewish people in Judea. From there, it would go out to Samaria and then from there to the ends of the earth. And as we read through the books, we see that it's precisely what happens. Philip here takes it to Samaria. Peter in Acts 10 will take it to the Gentiles, and Paul eventually will carry the gospel all the way to the city of Rome. It's like a wildfire that is ignited and starts and catches and just spreads all over the place. The apostles, on hearing that the fire is spreading to Samaria, they go down to see it for themselves. Why? Why? Why would God do it this way? Why would he hold the Spirit back from them until Peter and John go? Well, the answer is, I believe, because God wants to preserve the unity of his people. In doing it this way, God is keeping his people together. He's keeping them together. These are an outside, Samaria, an outside people. Long historical, cultural, theological differences. Imagine the encouragement that this would have produced in both groups, the unity that it would have preserved for both. The, the potential would have been for the church of Samaria to sort of become autonomous and sort of do its own thing. But instead, Peter and John, apostles, go down and they see it for themselves, that there is a genuine faith, that the word, the word has been proclaimed and received by the people. And so these people, though ethnically different, culturally different, are now a part of the same family. The church in Jerusalem needed to see it for themselves. Believe this happened for the people of Samaria so that they could be encouraged that we are part of this family. It also happened for the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is unique. It's not how it happens today, but it's still, there's a significant lesson for us to learn. The church had preached the gospel in Jerusalem, but they hadn't up until this point 
preached it in Judea and throughout Samaria or to the ends of the earth. They stayed in Jerusalem. They weren't doing what Jesus told them to do in Acts 1.8. It's a reminder for us that God causes his people to be faithful to his purpose oftentimes by means that we would not choose for ourselves. The faithfulness for these people was produced out of a way that I guarantee you, they, had they had the chance to write the script, they would not have written it this way. They had not been obedient. But now, through Stephen's death, God's people are fulfilling his purposes. This is interesting. That's a major theme when you go back and read throughout Stephen's message. The idea that God is not restricted to the temple or to a particular location. It's a theme. It's a drum that he beats over and over and over. Where did God appear to Abraham? In Mesopotamia, not the promised land. When, when Joseph was sent to Egypt, guess what? God was with him there. When Moses, for 40 years, was in the land of Midian, guess where God was? With him. God's purposes in Christ are that, is that the word of God would be proclaimed and that disciples would be formed throughout all of the nations. His purposes in your life are bigger than you. They're, they're bigger than me. God wants the entire world to hear his name to see his glory, and he has enlisted you and me into making that happen. Now, the way about which he accomplishes it, again, oftentimes it's not the choice of, you know, it's not the way we would write the script, so to speak. I guarantee you 20 years ago, I had no idea I would be standing up here. And odds are 20 years ago for each of you, you had no idea you'd be sitting there doing whatever it is that you're doing. God is working his purposes in the lives of his people for his glory. The result of that in your life and mine should be take heart and take God for his word. Be encouraged. What you're going through, he sees, he knows, and he's with you. And he's working it not just for your good, but for his glory. That's a message that should make you want to get up in the morning, no matter what awaits you. Now, the third sort of scene that we see, we see the pattern of revival, we see the preservation of unity. I tried really hard to come up with a third P. I just gave up at some point. <laughs> Please forgive me. But there is a P in the word, so that works. The third point is we see the exposure of sin. The exposure of sin. And you read stories like this in Acts and throughout history, and you might, like my, myself, think, how amazing would it have been to be there firsthand, to watch all of this take place? How awesome it would have been to be caught up in a revival 
like this. Or even throughout history, you see when revivals take place and you long for that, you want to be a part of that. To see the grace of God on such powerful display and the power of God so undeniable. How sweet it would have been there. Well, that's true. Another truth accompanies that. It's times like this when the light shines so brightly that what has been hiding in the dark becomes exposed. Times of revival are also times of exposure. The coming of the Holy Spirit in Samaria on this day reveals that which is not holy. Now we see this ultimately play out in the life of Simon. The city of Samaria had been wonderfully delivered from the influence and from the power of Simon the magician by the preaching of Philip. Previously, he was the voice that they paid attention to. Even more, Simon himself, as the story tells us, would profess faith in Christ. He would be baptized in Christ. Seems fantastic, glorious. Yet the truth of Simon would be exposed. Look at verse 17. Simon comes to the apostles when he sees that the Spirit's given on by the laying of hands from the apostles, and he offers them money. In verse 19, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon's thinking to himself, how awesome. These men could just with the touch of a hand give this power freely at their disposal. He's ready to empty his pockets, whatever he could do, that he might access this same power. He wants in on some of the action. Peter's response at Simon's request, we see it in verse 20, could not be more severe. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, translation, the message says this, to hell with your money and you along with it. To hell with your money and you along with it. Those are some terrifying words. Strong words. See, because Peter recognizes what's going on in Simon's heart. The, he's been taken over by a lust for power, not a longing for grace. A hunger for influence rather than a desire for love. Peter then goes on to accuse Simon of two things. He says your heart is not right before God. And then he says that he's being controlled by bitterness. In fact, it's apparent that sin has been so exposed in Simon's life that when given the opportunity to pray, Simon's response is, can you just do it for me? We don't really know what happens with him here. But what's so fascinating, as we consider the situation of Simon and our story up until this point, how the Spirit of God was at work in the days of the early church, this is not the first story that we've encountered that should cause us to 
person may be, be a little terrified. Individuals were smack dab in the middle of God's grace. All the reasons to give their life over. See it before them. And yet, they have been overcome by sins, just like Simon. We saw beginning of Acts, Judas spent time with Jesus, would betray him. Why? For his own gain. For his own money. We saw a story of Ananias and Sapphira, who would falsify their givings close to the action. Close enough that they would gain from it. They wanted the benefits of what the gospel had to offer, but they didn't want the God of the gospel. Their hearts were hard and calloused towards the truth. And this is the scary thing about the Holy Spirit. Is that when He draws near to you and to me, the truth about us becomes clear. Becomes clear. What is true about you this morning? The good news of the story, the good news of the gospel, as Pastor Thomas mentioned earlier, is that the only qualification for us as we draw near to God, the only thing we bring to the table is our brokenness, our sin, our and the exhortation for us this morning is to not be like Simon, to not turn from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus as he draws near, but to turn to him in our need, in our brokenness, and to fling all of who we are and all that we have into his hands and to trust him for the forgiveness of our sins as they're exposed to us. The goodness of Jesus is that no matter what you're struggling with this very day, he knows it and he still wants you. And he and he alone can forgive you your sins and give you new life. Church, turn to Jesus as the sin in your life is exposed. Confess Repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And he will, through you, accomplish his purposes. Not just for your good, but for the good of all people. This message broke forth out of pain and suffering. And it was carried from one people to another people by a broken, sinful man who was obedient to Jesus. Who was obedient. Question before us this morning. Do we know what was holding them back? What's holding you back? Take that to Jesus. I'm going to give you a minute of just silence and invite Pastor Thomas to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. So just take a moment and quietly reflect in your heart. What's holding you back?